You are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. Today, we have a very special episode hosted by Jeff Epstein, but not that Epstein, where we talk about the counter-revolutionary nature of the suburbs. Today is part two of my two-part conversation with second-year MMT activist and graduate student Jane Ball. In part one, Jane described their journey to MMT and the flaws of mainstream Marxism. Today, Jane and I discuss two of their academic-style posts. The first documents studies that demonstrate the benefits of existing UBI-like programs, including the $5,000 a year paid to every Alaskan citizen by a fossil fuel company. The regular payment is clearly beneficial to its recipients, with the cruel irony being that the payments are made by companies which are viciously predatory to those very same recipients in the long run. The second is a fascinating post documenting how racist zoning has been official United States government policy starting soon after the Russian Revolution. These policies were a deliberate effort by the government to prevent a similar kind of popular uprising. This was done primarily and essentially by dangling a nice home in the faces of white people and by keeping black and brown people out via redlining and discriminatory ordinances. So not only was this country built long ago on the backs and with the blood of black and brown people, that virulent racism continues today in active policy all around the country. And now back to my conversation with Jane Ball. This is part two of a two-part conversation. Enjoy. of even the poorest countries can provide all of their people with basic needs, healthcare, education, uh, food, housing. It may not be as razzle-dazzle as the, the most wealthy countries, but that doesn't stop them from being able to provide everything, every basic need, not luxury, but every basic need to prevent right. suffering for everyone. You know, and the fact that we don't do it here is just a reflection of people who have a lot, people who have lo- people who have luxury are afraid of losing their luxury if the millions of desperate are given what they need. Yep. Um yeah. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> okay. Um well why don't we move on to your uh to your UBI and your your zoning articles? Yeah. So okay. uh, well, yeah, I think this I think is a good transition to the um, UBI. So I had set out um, originally that was an assignment for school. So I was trying. I wanted to compare, like the UBI, look at the UBI and the job guarantee, and try to do some comparison. And I wasn't. What I found was that they're not necessarily. They don't. They're not opposed to each other. They, or a basic income, a guaranteed basic income, um, should work in tandem like with um, the job guarantee. And so I was, but I was looking at, I wasn't looking just at the UBI, but UBI through deficit spending. And 
so first, are any of the conservative critiques of the UBI valid? And no, they're not. I mean, they. Well, people, what are the what so, are the conservative? A yeah, couple so of conservative critiques that it disincentivizes people from working, and that people are just going to waste waste money on frivolous things as opposed to like bills that they need. Um, and I mean, this is all stuff that we're hearing right now about unemployment. Huh? Like that. Those are, those are the articles. Like they don't want to give free money to people because people won't work. Well, and it's like, well, that's, you're kind of giving away the plot right there. Um, huh. That's interesting. It's like either side. I, and I, 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 it's just a feeling at the moment, but it's like, okay, well we give them money. They're just going to use it for, like you say, something like drugs, you know, drugs, right. alcohol. It, if we guarantee them a job, then I, I don't know. It's it's there's a terrible there's a terrible way to frame both sides of it. Oh yeah, it, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah. So the disincentivizing work, and then yeah. So those are like the two main conservative critiques that I looked at, and there there's evidence in from Alaska where they have like the sovereign fund for oil. And then the Eastern Ban of Cherokee have um, a UBI based off of casino proceeds. Right. And I'm trying to, there was, those were the two that had good evidence. The other ones were kind of like there was, like there wasn't, it got jammed up politically before there was good evidence. Okay. Both of those, the studies on both of them showed that it was successful in helping people. Um, stay out of poverty, that it helped them plan and get ahead of their bills instead of just people wasting it on frivolous things, or drugs, alcohol, or just whatever. And it, it didn't disincentivize work. And in Alaska, it actually, like, job numbers went up. Like, people, there were, like, the un- unemployment went down because of basic ben- the basic income benefits that people had. This was not a, this was like something I know Alaska's, I think about like $5,000 a year or. Yes. Yeah. It's not, it's not like an extravagant, extravagant amount of money, but like that's still $5,000 a year is. It's a substantial, but it doesn't stop you from having to work. Right. But it made it easier for people were like on the cusp to be able to get a job. Um, So they were able to then get more income. Um, And then. With the same, so same thing in um, the Eastern Cher- the Eastern Band Cherokee study. That was interesting because they there was already a study going on about like demographics between, like in that area between the Cherokee and non-Cherokee people, and like specifically like children. I think it was, and it was a longitudinal study. So they looked at it over ten years, and halfway through is when the UBI went through, and you can see. The people who got the UBI were like they were more likely to finish school. They had better grades when they were in school, a lot better, like much better economic outcomes than their peers whose families weren't getting the UBI. So that was kind of that was like the first half was just debunking some of the concerns about it. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how um, the uh, the racist or yeah, racist connotations of the idea that the money will be used for, or the concern, so-called concern that the money will be used for drugs and alcohol and so yeah. on. Yeah, I mean it's 
it's super racist like that is that's the uh, i mean so it's classist and racist um and like the two of them tie in together there's obvious like there's always been like just that kind of attitude towards towards poor people in general but like that specifically that the trope mm. of like spending it on alcohol is like something specifically that the united like the mainstream culture used against native americans actually um, reminds as, me of reagan's welfare queen driving well yeah exactly yeah i mean and it's not it's not just limited to it's been used against pretty much every non-white and i mean even like before like the ethnic europeans were assimilated that was the attitude towards them as well that's actually where the homeowner like the zoning thing ties in that like so the that article discusses the explicit racist policies by like the wilson administration and the harding administration and the hoover administration and the roosevelt administration um through the fda but also in partnership with local like local professionals real estate agents economists urban planners and local governments to basically the de-ethnicize the working class let, let, let actually let me let's let's hold off a little bit on that okay. because I want to get more. I actually want to get more into that. I'd like to f- let me uh, finish a few points on this UBI thing, and then yes. we can. Okay. Um. So 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 back to this UBI article. A cruel irony is the findings of these the Alaska and the casino uh, basic incomes. The findings showed that no, it didn't. It it helped these people. Right. It genuinely helped them. They were more productive. They they were more likely to get a job. They were more likely just positive outcomes. And yet, all with this, <sighs> the Alaska people were paid by a fossil fuel company. As yep. far as I as far as I am concerned, to look the other way while they destroy their environment. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it reduces poverty now, but. The ninety nine percent aren't even going to exist because of fossil fuels, right? At at the rate that we're currently going, so that's not helping these people, right? It's killing them in the long run to give them current survival, and and same to a lesser extent with casinos. That's that's just predatory against the poor as well. Mm-hmm. So again, yeah, it's helping them. The money is helping them, but it is helping them in they're sacrificing their long-term existence. Right. I mean, that's just like that, like really stuck, stuck out to me. And it's like, that's the evidence that we're taking to show that, you know, uh, basic income to some extent is yeah. a good thing. Yeah. Well, so the way that I look at it is that, cause yeah, I, and I can't remember if I mentioned that in um, like those things in my article or not. Um, but the way that I look at it is that, okay, these things show the behaviors that detractors are concerned about are not true. Right. But these are not models for how to pay for, pay for a UBI. And so I, and I ended up doing research on the, on like how, just to try to see like what the macro impacts were. And the Roosevelt Institute has a really good projection that they use 
model built from the Levi Institute to project the economic growth based off of looking at funding the UBI either like either through taxes or some sort of redistribution. So the, the both Alaska and the North Carolina, the Eastern Band Cherokee examples are redistributive in different ways, but they're not necessarily, it's not adding to the economy. So that, that I believe has like an economic, if you just, if you completely fund it through taxes, if it's a completely pay-go thing, there's no economic, overall macroeconomic benefit. There's some benefit if you do like half pay-as-you-go um, and half deficit spending. Um, and I think it's like three, four percent. But if you like finance it completely through deficit spending, and this is really what I wanted to see, the economic growth is like 12 to 19 percent. It's like absurd. Like the annual growth rate is like so much more. And that makes sense. There's like the people that are going to be getting needed who need it the most are going to start spending. And like there's, if you think about all of the, the like the amount of debt that people have just for consume like not consumer, not like luxury items, but like just home, car, health sure. insurance, school, that stuff. If people have money to pay for that and then disposable income, like that grows the economy. And you can see that like the reason why the economy didn't crash from April to June was because of the payments to people who needed it most. That's where spending remained the most, like the lower income brackets were where spending remained the highest. And I think actually increased as opposed to the rest of America where people were holding back on spending. And so that deficit spending has tremendous economic growth potential. So, so basic income to some extent is a good thing only in our corrupt, I mean, we have a corrupt system where we where we burden the people at the bottom with an insane amount of debt. Right. So therefore, some basic income would just the first thing it would do would alleviate that debt. So it wouldn't, at least a some portion of it, wouldn't be inflationary because it would not be going to new production, at least not not initially. You know, yeah. The, like like canceling student debt goes to canceling that debt. Number one, it goes to canceling that debt. And number two, it's distributed over time. It's, this is a, a little bit of a tangent, but when you cancel student debt, you're canceling future payments right. of like whatever, $300 a month. So it's not like, you know, bam, you're giving people a ton of money. But, but, but the fact that the poor are burdened with private debt means that to some extent, we could compensate for that by paying these people to pay their, to, to pay their private debt. On the other hand, we could also just prevent that private debt from be to, to begin with. You know, we could give people healthcare, give people a home, give people, you know, basic needs. And then the UBI would, you know, it's like, it's like, how about we not hurt people to begin with? And rather than having to come up with a solution because it's a fact of life that people, we have to hurt people. Right. You know, and I, uh, good. Well, I, I, I think, yeah, that like when you think about it, like the basic income is then it's not just, in money, like the basic income, and it's more than income, but it's it covers a lot of those social reproductive things. And so, yeah, I think, and I, I can't do the calculus, um, but I don't think it'll be, infl I don't yeah. think it would be immediately inflationary. Um, and uh, like, this is a perfect example. 
Um, but even people who like, if it extends to, if it's more generous to people that are middle income, like that's, it's going to be, it's going to be the same thing. And there, there will be more spending. The question is then what is it spent on? And I think the other reason why I don't necessarily like calling it the job guarantee. I like referring to it as like the employer of last resort, because I think that it's kind of playing the detractors game, but at least it, it allows, it gives you a, it's a reframing of it to like, if they're already opposed and they're about to say that it's workfare, like you've, you've got them listening for a minute. So you can at least get into why Mm. it's important. But (laughs) I mean, I think a big reason why it's important is not just to employ people, but like that's going to be what sets it. Like if, if it's done the right way, that will be what sets government product, like the production of that, that everyone's doing. And if it's the government is, the government can spend it on um, or directed towards the military industrial complex, which they've been doing, or it can be directed towards something that actually benefits people. Um, uh, I actually just coincidentally, right before we spoke, I heard an interview with Stephanie Kelton on the Mark Blythe's podcast. And she and Mark actually said almost exactly what you just said, which is I don't like calling it a guarantee because that caters to, you know, very easily framing it badly, you know, right. that, that, that caters to the negative, you know, responses to it. Right. They, they can hurt us easily with that framing. And actually Stephanie, I don't remember her exact, her exact reasoning, but she said, I like, I like guarantee. I like, I like the, I like guarantee as opposed to, I don't remember the, what the alternative was, but yeah, but, but it's, you know, we guarantee that you will have a job if you need a job. If yeah. You and want, I, if you want a job and, but just, just coincidentally, I just happened to hear that. Yeah. Well, and that's the, like, I, I also agree with that because I, uh, I, I think, think presenting yourself, presenting your ideas, you just have to present them in the way that is best that right. you believe is best. Because if you do it in a way that you try to avoid negative responses that if someone is against you, they will use whatever it is you do or don't do against you. So rather than cater to, I will not say it in this particular way because I am afraid they will use it against me. Their whole job, their whole existence is to use whatever possible against you. So therefore I, I believe you should just phrase it in the way that you feel is best. Right. And and I do like I like the guarantee phrasing because it like if you using uh, Warren Mosler's like way of uh, explaining how unemployment like taxation is what leads to unemployment where he's like um, you're in a room and like you can only use my business card to get out um, uh, but there's a guy there's a guy let, the gun. yeah he yeah <laughs> um, that yeah that like I did I explained that to people like i said i did that to some people and i was like okay like so now having said that i've just made you unemployed and people were like what like that's like i like they got it but they were just their mind was blown and so like from that (laughs) angle like and the issue the reason why it's exploitive is because those guaranteed taxes don't come with a guaranteed way of paying for them um and so from that that's interesting that's interesting so that that mosler story is like there's a guy at the door with a gun 
you're going to do this job for me or you're not going to get out. But, but then you can also say on top of it, yeah, that's evil. But if that guy also says, I guarantee that you will have, you know, a, a, a respectable way of earning that so that you can get out, you know, right. I don't know. That just hit me. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, that's, but that's exactly it. And then, but then it, like to, push the analogy further the question is who then decides what are what's the necessary work in that room like i think where the disconnect with other people who don't necessarily get or approve of mmt is that they think it's advocating for something new and it's it's not it's saying like this is how things work like that is that's a Mm. very reductive way of explaining the economy but that's essentially how it is and so who has who's in charge of what needs to be done to get out of the room? Is it the mm-hmm. is it the guy or is it the people? And yeah. I think and that MMT is saying it could be either. It works either way, but we think that it should be the people. Um, and yeah. I don't think, at least with Marxists here, is give money to capitalists. And it's like that's no, they're already getting money. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and actually, you know, I, just a quick aside, and then we'll go to your your uh, rezoning article. the The parenting theory of allowance, okay, mm-hmm. state theory of money. It really boils down to violence. It, I mean, the uh, the <clears throat> it starts with state power. A state, a, a sovereign has a monopoly on violence within its own borders. That's what it is. Yep. Then it imposes. You know, you choose a unit of account. It imposes a tax tax on that in that unit, and then gives people jobs in order to earn that unit and so on to do what it needs to do. But you know, Warren says it, the money story begins with a government that needs to provision itself. But it, you can break that down to saying it starts with state power, and state power means that a sovereign has a monopoly on violence within its own borders, and therefore it can impose liabilities and forgive liabilities within its own borders. And then, you know, that's when it's like, so what do I want done? Then that's the provisioning part of it. Right. And then it's not so far off. Like, you know, the parenting theory of allowance. I tell my kids, you know, my kids get a, a small allowance each week and we, and in, in exchange, we get to tell them to do chores, you know, and, and it, but it's not just the chores. It's just in general, just being a parent in general. I have, a, I, have a, I have an 11-year-old and a 13-year-old boy, two boys. Telling them to do stuff, it is an incredibly difficult balance <laughs> to being a good parent, to get them to do what truly needs to be done and not let them sucker you. Mm-hmm. You actually do really have to, like the threat of violence it's there's really isn't it it's a really an analogous situation <laughs> it's like you you know my my older my older son is 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 can be he's 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 a difficult kid he's a difficult kid and i i you know i see a lot of me from when i was younger and so he'll say no you know he'll just say no and so you have to i really see it as analogous to the state theory of money it really comes down to you know within this house my wife and I have the monopoly on making people miserable, you know, making them miserable. And therefore, you know, you will do what needs to be done. I, I don't know. It's just that I, 
I, I think it's a valid theory. Yeah, no, it's, it's a I parenting mean, parenting theory of allowance. Anyway. Yeah, no, it definitely. Article. Zoning it, article. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, so let's, let's finish with your zoning article, please. I actually, let me tell you what it, I actually find it uh, striking because I spoke with uh, Ryan Mathis in, in, I think it was episode 21 or whatever. Um, Ryan Mathis uh, is on Facebook. He's not on Twitter. He used to be on Twitter. He's a first-year law student. Uh, he and he and I, along with uh, some other people, roomed together at last year's conference. It was a two-part episode, but the first part was with uh, Historically. Um, uh, and this part two was with my podcast activist, MMT. Uh, but what we spoke about Part one is unrelated, but in part two, uh, what we ended with is when I went to the conference with him last year, he was one of the four or five people that I roomed with at the conference last year in Long Island. And he went, you know, he stayed over my house. Uh, uh, we drove home and he stayed at my house and then went to the airport early the next morning. And we went to breakfast. And what he told me that morning was something that I had never heard before. And that was, that was basically... Like this sort of all goes back to land ownership mm -hmm. where land is a big part of how people dominate other people. And what he, what, what it boiled down to was it's like, how can anyone, it, it, it's it, the, the episode was basically debunking the idea that, um, that anything is natural any law is natural and that, and that is sort of centered around land ownership mm -hmm. um, because number, because how did that land come into that person's hand? And even me and you in, in the little tiny little plots of land that we're sitting on now, mm -hmm. you know, we didn't do anything horrible to get what we currently have, but that doesn't say anything of, of what, the legacy of the land that we're sitting on, you know, the suffering that was involved in making this townhome that I'm sitting in now to come to be. Yep. So, so therefore it's like, what right do I have? Even though I didn't do anything bad, what right do I have to claim ownership on this home? And especially like capital, you know, this country was built on genocide and slavery. Mm -hmm. So what right do we have to claim ownership on this land? And related to this is free market. How can a private business, in addition to the, in addition to the concerns of the land that they have and the property that they have and how the history of how they obtained it, how can any business be truly free, independent, if they require, like every decade, an enormous bailout from the central government. Right. Because, number one, you know, if they want to be free and yet they use that power to abuse their workers and to kill the environment and, and you know, fossil fuels, climate change and all that. So it's like, you know, they steal from us as individuals and then every 10 years they steal from us as a collective by getting a bailout from the government. So were they ever private to begin with? Is there any such thing as a private business? And so, so that showed me that the history of how people obtained their land and their property, you know, shows that 
the, the current claim of ownership is, is potentially invalid. But your article is different. Your zoning article shows that it's not just the history. It's the current usage of land as a weapon, as a tool to perpetuate racism in the present. Yep. So I'll leave it there. Can yeah. you can you talk, you know? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, it's definitely like land has always been, um, or, or property, we'll say, because property, property extends beyond land. Um, and I think property is really where what makes in the eyes of like the government kind of what makes someone a citizen versus not as a citizen, even if they are like under the constitution. Yeah. So <clears throat> land being used has like traditionally been used to dominate um, like all across, across the globe, across history, but yeah, particular to now. Um, I mean, it's the history of zoning and it's the zoning that we, most places that we have now uh, still have. So Notable Minneapolis and Portland no longer have these zoning codes, um, but we'll come back to that. But this, you know, the zoning originates in a lot of anti-Chinese immigrant feelings back in the 1880s, um, and then as Jim Crow is implemented and then ramped up, and especially following the Wilson administration or during the Wilson administration. So there's that's when there's like concerted government policy to basically to sp- spread into spread people out through the suburbs, but to, uh, part of it was to create another cleave between the working class. So working class ethnic white people who were living they were at the time they were living in um, diverse multi ethnic neighborhoods. They were through a lot of different government programs, most notably um, the HOLC, uh, which I can't remember what that means off the top of my head, and then the uh, Federal Housing Administration following them, um, underwriting mortgages for specific people and not for other people based off of uh, skin color. So th- that's really what, that's that sets, that sets the stage for where we are now. And it, the idea was very specifically anti-communist. Um, there was a campaign in the late eight, uh, 1910s um, that called Own Your Own Home. And it was explicitly about like reacting to the turmoil in Russia and realizing that there were there was a proletariat that was brewing, like discontent was brewing in the cities. And I mean, th- there to as a response to what was going on and to prevent anything from happening like the similar thing to happening in Russia happening here the government embarked on this make uh, own your own home and they started producing propaganda um really driving people to think that it was unpatriotic to rent and it was patriotic to buy but wait what happened in Russia the Russian revolution so this oh to avoid a revolution. Yes, this was. Th- so they're dividing people at the molecular level right from the beginning. Is what this you're saying. is. Well, this is in the United States as a reaction to the Ruff- Russian Revolution. Right. Um, yeah, and right. so um, yeah, right from this is 1918-1919. So they start producing like better homes thing. Uh, just all this propaganda coming out of the Commerce Department and partnering with. Uh, local economists, local real estate agents, 
Um, the National Real Estate Board, up until like the 50s, you couldn't get licensed by them if, unless you explicitly created, had developments with racial covenants so that there would only be, houses would only be sold to white people in perpetuity. And so like a lot of those, a lot of those covenants, they're not active anymore, but they still exist. Um, they haven't been stricken from the books. The government just can't enforce them. But you see, like that's kind of where the like how wealth is generated is through through this mechanism. And so, a couple of good books that I are my uh, sources for this: "The Color of Law" by Richard Rothstein and "Colored Pro- Property" by David uh, Freund. They go into like the very specifics that the government undertook to really um, prop up, the, like to create a housing market for white people explicitly to separate them from separate working class white people from working class people of color. Mm. And when you look at what the zoning codes are, so like there's like noise, noise ordinances, there's um, density ordinances, the amount of land that each property needs to have, but how much can actually be built on all of that. What's an example of a noise ordinance? Um, this is like if it's loud after if there's a certain volume after a certain time so that might but that might be you know there's a large family and so like in the neighborhood that is just outside and they may end up having like legal troubles with the town it could be like a like in a mixed residential unit mixed use residential it could be some sort of business that is seen as like a public nuisance so like anything and that's basically like noise is the easiest uh, way of understanding public nuisance but when you look back at like what you know what were the code racially coded words crowding unclean dirty like those are all stand-ins for immigrants and people of color and through the 30s and 40s and i mean even still but it's not now it's just building upon itself i mean that's not even true it's still pretty it's still there's still a lot of explicit segregation as well as implicit but it's it creates this wealth generation for white people through the suburbs and excludes people of color um and it's it's a lot of people like the understanding of redlining is that it is it was just the free market, but it wasn't. It was the government set up this mortgage. They completely changed the way that mortgages were paid. Um, it used to be you would have it would be like a five year mortgage, and there would be a balloon payment all at once, and so people couldn't afford they couldn't afford to do that. Most people, but so the thirty year fixed rate mortgage was a way of making property affordable to working class people so that they could spend 30 years paying for it as opposed to five years, but they would not have any of these like balloon payments on interest that would cause uh, default. So that's kind of, it was, an, it's an explicit market creation that has been propagandized as a free market. So connect, so do me a favor and just connect that again, start from, you know, 
how is it racist? So can you connect that again to? Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it, it kind of goes back to, I mean, it starts with the way that the ruling class in the early 1900s viewed immigrants and they, they viewed immigrants from Southern Europe. And that, and that was where the majority of the immigration was coming from. They viewed them the same way that they viewed Chinese immigrants or black people. It was just, they were white people treated them as a public nuisance more or less. And it, a lot of it comes down to like, it really comes down to race science and which has been discredited now, but a lot of the assumptions about what creates value for housing or what detracts from value, whether or not certain, like certain people from certain parts of the world have too many kids or are naturally dirty. And we hear the same, like the same kind of topics now, uh, the same rhetoric used against people from Latin America and just immigrants in general now, but it was very explicitly based in this eugenics idea that people that were not Anglo-Saxon or German or Northern European were not part of the ruling class. Who would have thought race science and the housing market were birds of a feather? People who subscribe to our newsletter, that's who. So subscribe to our Substack at historically.substack.com to check out other episodes of the podcast, our newsletter, and find out how to catch our live streams on Twitch and YouTube. That's historically.substack.com. Also, do you need the perfect follow-up to Catterday? Learn more about Beeline Friend and revolutionary Vladimir Ilyich Ulanov on Twitch by tuning in to our Sundays with Lenin on twitch.tv forward slash historically. It is what is to be done. I've heard before, like suburbs is... Like there's something in, I, I, I'm actually sort of losing what, what even, it's just a vague, you know, people ex- escaping yeah. to the suburbs. So uh, the, the, the conventional wisdom is that the white flight started after World War II um, and people coming home from World War II wanted to buy homes in the suburbs and that's when white flight started and that was what started like this massive amount of segregation. And to an extent that is true. That is certainly when it took off, but the policies were put in place 20 years before, 30 years before um, by people who were long dead at that point. Um, So like Wilson and Warren Harding, especially in his time in the commerce department, he had his hands in a lot of like the propaganda magazines that like depicted a certain, like what houses were supposed to look like. And it was talking about a certain type of like how things were clean. And so there, that was part of it, but he also worked very closely with real estate agent board. I can't remember. They've changed their name several times now, but um, yeah, he partnered like closely with them to work on how properties were valued and like it, it was a market that was created from the 1920s to the 1940s. And then when people came home, it, they were able to, those people based off of all of the other government 
benefits were able to purchase in the suburbs, but it was only, for the most part, it was only white folks. And to the extent that like people of color, specifically black folks, were able to get into suburbs, it was typically, they were typically segregated suburbs and they weren't where the jobs were. Um, oh. And that was, it was done on purpose. Yeah, that's, 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 that's shocking. The, the, the idea that you're saying to avoid the Russian revolution, the, the equivalent of that kind of revolution, they, they divided people up through zoning by basically dangling a nice home and property in front of their faces. Yep. That's precisely it. That's yeah. That I had never heard that before. Yeah. I mean, I. It's not well known. That it was that. That, planned. Yeah. Yes. Like, so my so it's funny because my, urban design professor, um, I had her for two classes last semester, and I'm doing my thesis with her. And so when I was writing this like report, I wrote a not as. Like this was my tone in this was much more aggressive. I didn't, I had to, this was for like a giant paper that was being given to a town. So I had to rein it in, but she was like, you know, like it, this, it wasn't racial. It wasn't racialized the way that you're saying. And like, she corrected me and I don't remember seeing this. So I, that's, I, when she apologized, I was like, oh yeah, that's fine. But she read color of law and she was like, I had no idea. And like, this is like, she teaches this and she had, she was like, I just didn't know. To the extent, what's, what's her? She's what's her? Uh, she's an urban design um, instructor. Wow. Yeah, and it, it's but that that's typical. Most people like it's people know about redlining now, but they don't know about the full the whole story. There's another side to this as well, which is, uh, and I would I would highly recommend this to you. It's not directly zoning, but it it is it is really important context. And it's called uh, Racial Taxation mm -hmm. by Camille Walsh. Uh, and I did an interview with her, episodes 12 and 13. Um, really, it is such an amazing book. What it is about is it centers around uh, how public schools are funded by local taxes. Obviously, they could be funded by federal funds. Mm -hmm. But when you fund it, and when you fund it by local taxes that puts the rich in control of you know <laughs> the decisions yep so they keep they keep you know they they get the the good school facilities for themselves but they also keep those who don't pay as much in taxes away from the levers of power so that they can't get so that they can't accumulate property and rights and so on so that they can be taxed more right they can't even make the decisions of how much they're going to be taxed. So they're just, it's just, it's just another process of like, even if they got into the neighborhood, for example, they would still, there are still tools to, to crush them even, you know, on the other side of yeah, it as well. There, yeah. I forget. Um, I don't know if this is the same, but there's something, I, f I forget exactly what it is, but like property taxes, even though home values are lower on, like mo like the average black owned home, the property tax taxes that they're charged is higher, I believe. Pretty, well, it has to be if they're going to get the services yeah. like, that are funded by local taxes. They have to be higher because 
number one, you know, they don't make as much. So the percentage is not going to be anywhere near as much as it is in a white neighborhood that pays more in taxes because they have more property because they have the rights to they, they have the control of levers of power, which gives them the right to take that land, you know, so-called legally create, make it legal. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, yeah. So, I mean, well, so this is, I think overall, like this, the housing market is a good, another good demonstration of like, uh, certainly an evil way that the state creates markets and then sets basically manages pre-distribution, but it, it, it shows that there is no free market. A market is created by the state and whether I, whether the state owns the private organizations or the private organizations really own the state. Like it's sort of at a certain point, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other, because like you still, you got to fight both of them um, and you got to find a way to overcome both of them. But that's, you know, it's a good, it's a, it's a tangible example that we're still dealing with of how the government is able to create these markets using institutions and the law and it they don't i mean it doesn't have to be exploitive but they they have been and i think that's you know to tie it back to one of the things that mmt says is that you know using institutions doesn't have to be it doesn't have to be exploitive that is how they are now but it doesn't need to be that way but choosing like if you when you say you know mmt wants fiscal you know wants more fiscal policy you know Everything is conditional on the people gaining power, right? You know, the people rising up and educating the people, so that they rise up in an educated way. That makes it much more likely that they will not be divided, is if they're more educated about you know which direction to go in. And it's like, it doesn't matter what you choose to do or not do. We're still dealing with human beings. Yep. So it's like you know the government is evil. It's like that. That's a pointless statement. It's like the market is evil. <laughs> It's, 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 you know, we, no matter what we choose, we have to make it better. Right. And to say that, oh, this tool, this, the government is bad and therefore the market is good. It's like, you know, they both influence each other. I mean, ultimately the government is, is what's in charge, but it's, it's silly. Like John Harvey has this analogy where he says, you know, I only like hammers. <laughs> so if I have to cut something, we're going to have to figure we're not, we, you know, we can't do it because I don't, you know, I don't believe in saws. Right. You know, it's like this analogy of like only the free market. Yeah, but the free market can't like do truly full employment because they're profit-based. They can't, they have to be profit-based. Right. They have to let people go on a downturn. And that's when people are most desperate, you know? So that's like, you know, so that tool doesn't work for that particular, that particular outcome, yeah. that particular goal. Only the government can because they can do things. They don't have to, to do profit. So it's like, you know, just this idea that only certain institutions can be used. It's, it's just silly because no matter what humans are behind it. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, people forget that part that humans are behind it all. Right. So just to speak to something you just said, like, you know, like how do the people get power? Like it's that, uh, that's why the local, the local zoning stuff is so important because there are a lot of, People just don't know. I mean, I didn't know anything about it until March when I did all of this research. And that's the only way for us to really get control over the police state, the military industrial complex is to like 
in our own communities start redefining what you know active citizenship looks like for like in in our in our communities how we're making decisions who makes the decisions what and what forms of how we view property relations so that's why like portland it's not a mistake that portland and minneapolis are the two places that have some of the mo- most now the most progressive land zoning laws and have been like targets of the Trump administration um, over the last several months. And it's, it's not a straight line, but they're related. And his rhetoric, I think makes it super clear. That's, we, we need to be able to focus on specific tangible local things that will have major impacts. And I think understanding how, the housing market worked and how it was created and then now responding in a way that creates equity within social justice and like political and economic justice that that can't come later that has to come first because once we once we have control of the localities then as we're starting to do the any sort of green new deal that like those are the people those are the players that will be getting the money and not corporations ideally that's my plan it's my hope huh um did you know that police as an institution were created during reconstruction and came from slave catchers oh yes i didn't know that i just i just interviewed a black lives matter person a month ago or something and she told me that i was like whoa but uh, it makes perfect sense (laughs) yeah i mean yeah there's they have a bunch of different routes um, going back, to, and it's all around protecting private property. There's not, like, as far as I can think of, there isn't. It's all about. There's nothing that's besides protecting private property and wow. exclusive um, private property. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so two two more things. Number one, did this come up like when you discovered MMT? Is at the same time you discovered this zoning, racist zoning stuff? No, I discovered MMT in part because I was just reading economic stuff, but also people in class, it was always like, don't think about like, we would be like, okay, like we could do these things, but how are we going to pay for it? And the professor had to be like, stop thinking about how to make it possible. Just like for now, think about like what could be done. And then, so when was this just, the blacklisted professor that you talked about? No, that was no. This is no. That was in my undergrad. This is uh, my grad school. Oh, okay. So yeah, the professor of that class was just like, "Don't try not to think about how you're going to pay for it. Just let's talk about the policies." Um, so hmm. I came in one day and I was like, "I found. It. I I know how we're going to pay for this all." Hmm. And so I from then hmm. I tried to like add mm like talking about MMT to everything in that. The zoning stuff was research for um, our field projects where we were looking at repurposing a golf course in a suburban town for public housing. So did that come after or before MMT? Um, That came after. After, after. Okay. Um, All right. So the last thing I'd like to ask you to do, if I may, which is you posted an interesting response to to something. Oh, Oh, I remember. It was a question of how do we cure homelessness? Mm-hmm. And the and the response that you responded to said, by giving them homes, there's no other answer. Right. And then you responded with an interesting image, 
of a plot of land with like 18 homes on it. Yes. Where, where normally that same plot of land in our current society has maybe two to three homes. Yes. So can you, can you use that to close out? Yeah. So that is, and I can send you the link for that. Um, that is a design by Ross Chapman. He is an architect. He designs what are called pocket neighborhoods. And so it's, you know, the, that the plot of land in that picture is about three, just over three acres and typical zoning half acre, one acre plots of land. You would have, three to six houses and that one has three times has 18 um and it's by having the houses are you know a little bit smaller like the average house now is like over 2,000 square feet these the houses on that i think are around like 1700 square feet so they're not significantly that's plenty that's plenty oh my gosh. <laughs> the, yeah. the plots of land are around i th- are i think like 4800 to 5400 square feet though so the, oh the my gosh. which is still a lot it's plenty yes. to survive. I mean, give me a break. Yep. Yeah. So I'm sorry. Um, and so it's designed. So it's designed to be a much better usage of land in terms of housing, but then it prioritizes like a common central space um, that is accessible to everybody and used by everybody. But then there are layers of privacy to keep like to keep a certain sense of intimacy and privacy, but like also to encourage much more. So the houses are all facing each other. The, the roads are go around the development as a, instead of going through. There's a lot of green area, that sort of thing. Huh. Um, and wow. it's, it's a much more, it, it's just a better land usage policy um, because it's people are not having these weird, like these weirdly shaped ha- I mean we have I live on a half acre and it's great it, especially right now it's like the pandemic has been it's been great there's all this space to go outside but like there I don't know most of my neighbors so like there's not I there isn't like that sense of community that is mm-hmm. created by l- being a little bit more close together well that sort of says it all doesn't yeah. it yeah I forget the name of the development. It's something in uh, Washington. Um, It actually exists. Oh yeah. That's a real, yeah, it's a real place. I use that as that's like my, like my, he has like a bunch of different um, designs like that. So that's like my inspiration because I really like I, in my project, I used it to like create a neighborhood that was like a sort of like a geometric circle type thing. It looks a lot like Garden Cities, in my opinion, um, if you're familiar with Ebenezer Howard. No. But, so yeah, I he was my inspiration on that. But it's it's like a part of Salmon, Washington, I think, is or King Salmon or something like that. Wow, I didn't actually didn't realize that it existed. Yeah. I thought it was just a potential design. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah, that that's a real one, that one. Uh, it's not, I mean, it's not finished, I don't think. I think they're still... Um, developing it, but but it's real. It's, it's real. Yeah. Huh. That's amazing. That actually seems like a critical element of human survival. <laughs> yes. Honestly, and that that also uh, a job guarantee uh, because you know mass migration because of what's going to be happening with climate change. There's yep. going to be mass migration, and it's going to be you know what minorities, and that coupled with racism and the wall. Trump's wall yep. it, and the idea that 
they're coming to steal our jobs. If there were a job guarantee, that would melt away. Yep. Because there would be a job for everybody. That is a, that's not just like to make people happier. Like that will prevent the apocalypse or that is an, that is an important ingredient to preventing the apocalypse. I mean, you know, that's not too much of an exaggeration. You know, if everyone can get a job, then there's no worrying about people stealing your jobs, period. Yeah. I mean, that's exactly. My thoughts exactly. Um, Okay. Uh, okay. If there was anything else, uh, please say. Um, I presume that you're done. Yeah, I think that's that anything more that you. I think that's uh, that's a, that's a substantial amount right there. Jane, thank you so much for for doing. Yeah, this. thank you for having I, me. I really appreciate all. Yeah, I really appreciate all the time that you've given. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W R E C K. T-E-C-H. And thank you for listening to our show.